everyone to Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I'm your host, Teresa Signorelli, and we're bringing you information about the five areas of child development. And by that, we mean physical, intellectual, social, emotional, emotional, and moral, so parents can empower their children to thrive. Today, we have a Brains and Toyland segment, and it regards the impact that music has on child development. And we'll be talking about some of the science behind it, too, and giving parents some suggestions. And our guest is Akanam Abina, who is returning to our show uh, for the second time. Um, and she is a GIML certified music development specialist. And she's actually more than a music teacher. What she brands herself as is a music mentor. And she leads children in what she describes as a social and emotional journey um, as they improve their music skills. And she really has a beautiful, innovative mentoring approach that um, she includes in an Internet-based training program. And she's been doing that successfully with homeschooled families and I believe others since 2005. But as I said, today she's actually going to be talking to us a little bit about the research she's doing in her doctoral program. And as I had mentioned earlier, kind of the science behind um, the impact that music has on child development. So welcome, McCannum. Are you there? I'm here. Thank you very much for, for having me back again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. And just so um, maybe I should just make a reference to your last interview. So in that, I believe we called it Mentoring Mini Musicians, and you gave us really nice information about when and how to introduce children to formal music study um, and that was really important. There were some really nice eye-opening things, so I really encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that interview. But um, as I said, we're talking about music and the impact on la- uh, language development, on child development, I should say. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, developmental music psychology and how that relates to early childhood language development? Yeah, I would love to. Um so what I, I like to mention first off when I talk about this relationship is um, that um, a lot of people see children as, um, some people see children as maybe not doing anything when they're babies, as, as sort of a blob, <laughs> just sitting there, and they're not interesting until they're two. I actually had a dad tell me that a few months ago, um, that he's kind of bored with his baby, and I was glad that he felt um, free. <laughs> To, uh, or, or comfortable enough with me to say that. Um, but, you know, what I wanted to encourage him to understand is that his baby is doing a lot of things. They just don't look like the things that, that adults are doing. And um, so this study, this study of their psychology um, helps us kind of get a peek into what they're actually doing while they seem to look like a blob to some people. <laughs> and, yeah, um, and... and- I'm going to jump in for one second because I think that's such an important point that Mm -hmm. I find that too, that people don't realize how much is going on, how much learning is going on. And I might argue probably the most important learning in your lifetime when it looks like there's nothing happening. But um, really from birth and really actually in utero, especially with language and, and when the auditory system is developing, communication and learning is beginning there. And uh, so thank you for bringing that up. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that that that's such a good point you make about in, in utero and when the when um, the the auditory system is developing because um, we have some research that's that's shown us that 
babies in the womb have their own musical taste that is distinct from their mother's musical taste. So when they're, when, when they're feeling their mother's feelings, when their mother's listening to things that, that their mom likes, yes, some of the emotions are rubbing off on them, but they found that the children, um, when they're hearing uh, recorded music outside of the womb, they have their own, um, their own preferences. There are certain things they like that their mother may or not, may not actually like. So, um, I mean, talk about, you know, even before they look like a blob, you can't even see them, but they have their own thinking and their own, um, their own taste. And um, apart from taste, they also have um, this way of adding on to their vocabulary, which is kind of a, a link between speech and language that we're starting to discover that um, whereas in speech, the vocabulary is, you know, maybe syllables or letters or phonemes or words, in music, the vocabulary is tones and scales and rhythms and meters. And um, children who are very young start out by gathering um, this vocabulary by listening the same way they're gathering their language vocabulary by listening. Um, and so developmental music psychology tries to figure out what they're actually retaining. Um, if they recognize it again, they have different ways of investigating if they recognize it the next time and if they recognize it in other contexts, like in another meter or another key or another song. And, um, and seeing how they start to not only recognize it, but try to copy it and then try to, um, try to make something new out of it as, as they go, as they go through their development. Um, I actually right. have, so uh, that's just, just to clarify, that's with the tones and the scales and the meters, as you were saying, um, and how, that's not, um, unlike what happens with language development. Can you explain to the audience what you mean by uh, a scale or a meter and some of those terms you used? Yeah, I, I, I will do my best. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, when, I, when I say a scale, I just mean um, a graduated arrangement of, of tones, of musical tones. And um, they have relationships to each other that we like to call steps. So it's the difference between them in frequency. And the steps can be um, evenly measured. Um, and so if you think about the way a piano keyboard looks, um, a scale can be different if you start on a white key beside the group of three black keys or a white key beside the group of two black keys because the distances between each step are shorter or longer depending on where you started. And so when we talk about a scale, we just talk about this sequence of distances between the tones um, in, in a in in a group of tones, and scales in, in Western music are 12, uh, 12 semitones usually. Okay, so tones um, going from a, a higher to lower pitch or lower to higher pitch as you move across the sequence. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and we find that scales are, scales are universal, so just like um, there are things in language that are universal among people, it turns out that all peoples have some sort of scale in, the, in their music um, as well. Um, so watching children develop how they how they understand how scales are made up. This is a universal developmental um, developmental skill um, that's happening for kids. Okay. So is there anything else you'd like to add about how developmental music psychology relates to uh, language development? Yes, I would. Um, and it's kind of a it's kind of a parental or or caregiving. Um, comment that I've made before, which is that um, 
there's there's a way when we um, talk to young children who are babbling um, that is kind of sing-songy and is also very um, gentle and patient and giving. So if they if you tell if they're pointing at something and mispronouncing it, you say, "Oh yes, I see you're pointing at the table." Even if they said "da" or "da da," you say, "Oh yeah, that's the table." Um, and this kind of gentleness and patience and understanding that the child is making an effort um, to refer to something but pronouncing it in a in an elementary way. This is something that um, this attitude you can take in music as well, that when you hear a baby who's making a sound in response to music, you don't have to think the baby's doing nothing or, or just making noise. You can understand, oh, this baby is attempting to participate in this music and relate to us in this music. And um, you can have the same sort of responsive um, and patient relationship with the child instead of thinking, um, Oh, the child can't do anything in music until he's ten and can stand up and you know hold a hold a violin or a trumpet or something. Um, so that I think that's all I want to say about that. <laughs> okay, great, great. So maybe you can tell us then a little bit about the, what types of people, what types of professionals use developmental music psychology in the work that they do. Well, um, the first group that I know really well that, that uses it is um, music therapists. So um, the last time I was in a training program for um, knowing more about music learning in, at young ages, I had um, three different people who had traveled from Italy to be with us who were all music therapists. In other words, they worked with children who had developmental delays or who had physical, um, physical differences. Um, and they were using the information that we were learning to help them set their expectations for their students, um, their expectations for what their students would be able to do at various stages, and to also give them ideas for the kinds of stimuli they could use um, with their, their, their students or patients, however they addressed them when they were doing their therapy. Um, so music therapists are one kind, of, one kind of person that uses this kind of research in their work. And, um, and I recently met a lady who's a speech therapist who said that um, that she has a kind of tonal therapy that she does with some of her patients um, that's based on some some music learning research too. So I think um, both music therapists and speech speech language therapists use um, this kind of work in what they're doing. And then obviously also some music teachers <laughs> will use. <this. laughs> <laughs> because it helps things go faster. It helps you use um, your time more efficiently if you know that if I approach it this way, the kids are going to get it right away and then we can move on to the next thing, you know? So there are some teachers who are really conscious of that and who are, are excited to, to use it. Great. Great. So now you're looking more at this area and you're actually doing a PhD right now. And what is it that you're looking at? What study do you plan to develop and what are you hoping to find? Oh, okay. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the study I'm developing um, started with uh, a researcher called Joao Rigado. He's at a special lab in uh, Lisbon, Portugal. It's the Lab for Music and Communication in Infancy. And his study looked at how children respond vocally when they are sung to as opposed to when they're spoken to. And he got some interesting results that showed that um, babies, uh, babies starting from nine months and going to two years old, 
start making longer vowel sounds when they've been sung to as opposed to when they were spoken to. And um, you can think of a longer vowel sound as a singing vocalization if you'd like to, <laughs> because it's like, ah, instead of ah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yes. it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so from his work, um, I'm doing a project that's somewhat similar to his project with some changes that I've made that reflect on um, my sort of holistic view of what children are really like. Um, so in his project, he had children who he had planned some music to sing to them and also some poems to speak to them, rhythmic poems to speak to them while they were with their mothers. Um, in my case, I'm actually asking the mothers who come to my study to sing for me and say for me songs and nursery rhymes that they remember from when they were small. And um, I'm using a certain method that will allow me to repeat those songs and nursery rhymes as the actual stimuli for my project, for my research. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one difference um, between what I'm doing and what's been done before. And um, okay. another difference is that I'm going to focus purposely on one specific group of people. So it's a group of people who've immigrated to Lisbon um, from Angola, which is a country where Portuguese is spoken, but it's obviously in a different situation and by a different ethnic group. And their variation of Portuguese is slightly different from the European variation. So there's an interest in um, how that language variation would affect the results we get when we look at what happens when the children are sung to as opposed to spoken to. And then when we compare that to the, the original variation, the European variation that my colleague studied before. Okay. And what are you, what, what, what are you anticipating your outcomes will be? Well, I am anticipating and hoping that I will get similar outcomes, that I'll get the children um, making singing-like vocalizations when they hear their mothers singing to them. Um, I'm also hoping very much that I'm going to start seeing the way that the children move their bodies when they notice that their mothers are singing. I'm going to hope that they're doing something different with their bodies when they're singing than when they're speaking. Um, so it's up to me to observe that and see what happens when they're when they're responding as the as the experiment goes on. Um, but my primary um, expectation or hope is that we'll see that the kids are elongating their vowels and making these singing like sounds when their mothers are singing to them. Right. Now um, I do remember that you um, have mentioned how you want to help find information to help teachers when they're working with children. So what are you, in what ways do you think your research and maybe the, the research in this area in general, what information is there that teachers and parents can use like tomorrow? Tomorrow? <laughs> well, um, let's see. Well, I think that my basic approach and philosophy um, have to do with being intuitive, with being conversational with children. So I think um, I think the first thing is to um, to listen to children, to give them time, and to take what they what they what they give to you after you've sung to them, and copy it and turn it into a, a, a game, like turn it into a conversational kind of musical game with them, so that instead of just singing at them or just playing a recording at them, you're turning it into an exchange, um, not a lecture or a lecture like. Um, interaction where it's one way but um, so from today on you can 
start listening and, and copying your child just like you would copy them if they were saying the wrong word for table. Um, copy the sound that they make after you've sung to them and then sing to them again. Um, that's an easy thing to do right away. Um, and it's also an attitude of respect and conversation and, um, and, and listening that, um, that I think anyone can do anytime, regardless of how much research or, or knowledge they have in the area. Right. And children really respond to language. Um, well, yes, they respond to language, but they really respond to music. And I think the fact that these studies that you're mentioning and the one that you're working on, that the children are imitating or changing in response to how their parents are singing tells us they're really attending to that and they are um, changing their behaviors accordingly. And you had mentioned that kind of mother ease talk um, where it's sing-songy, um, to engage your children, there's research that, that says that that really is beneficial, that does help the children cue into what you're doing and saying. That's mm-hmm. great. And um, so what else can you tell us about your hopes for the results? Well, I'm really hoping that I can create um, m- more than just a thesis or, um, or a scientific paper. Uh, I would like to create um, a resource online where once I've collected these songs from the mothers, um, I can have some musicians help me to record them in a really appealing way that I can put on a website where teachers um, can come and hear the songs and see my suggestions for making the songs instructional and fun for kids in their classroom. So that um, in general, for any child who it's used for, but then also particularly for the children who are from these cultures where the music is well known, there can be an engagement in class in the class that I encourage with with this website that I build, um, and um, that's that's really it's not it's not the it's not the study itself, but it's a way that I'd like for the study to become um, useful to people in general. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and that's um, I understand that I'm a speech language pathologist myself, and I work in a university setting, and what I want to do is my research that is going to be helpful tomorrow and be practical and applied so I can go help patients and families with whom I'm working. So I think that you're doing this is a really wonderful thing. Oh, thank you. And, and, and I hope that, that, you're, that you – go ahead. I'm, I'm listening. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> you know what's happening? I'm getting a little feedback. I don't know if the audience can hear it because, well, I'm sitting in New York City and you're seeing, sitting in Portugal. So I think there's a little there's a little delay, but um, I was starting to say how how nice that was. You're looking to do something that can be applied and useful in everyday situations to help children and families, and it ties in with your maybe your your primary day job with your mother in tune website. Um, maybe do you want to talk a little bit about those programs that you have for families? Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you're right. It does kind of tie into the idea of of using the internet to encourage parents to have more musical times with their kids. And um, the most recent project that Mother in Tune did was called um, Summer's End, and it was um, a live concert that was recorded and broadcast where there were instrumentalists and singers who performed at the same level as babies and parents. And um, if you go to motherintune.com and and click see video, you can see some clips of what that was like for the babies and families. 
um, to be right next to the instruments and right next to the singers. And we were also um, moving expressively while, while we were performing the music. Um, and having that available online for parents is something that um, people have found useful if they don't happen to have uh, children's music classes near them, um, that they can put it on a screen and their family can see it on a screen. And then we can extend the instructional part with some of the offerings that I have for parents to do uh, family instruction with me where I'm live on video with them, sort of like we're live on the phone now, but live on video with mm -hmm. them and we can see each other and communicate with each other while we use, um, while we use the music and the movement to learn and to relate. Um, and that's a point that right. I wanted to make earlier is that um, kids are not necessarily just picking up rhythms and tones just to know them, but they're using them to communicate and they're using them to be with. And um, so that's what the programs at Mother and Tune are for, are to encourage this kind of being with, um, being with in music. <laughs> right. And you had mentioned at one point earlier you, that re regardless of the skill level that you have, you don't need to be a professional, you don't need to have wonderful skills and be musically talented for your children to have the benefit of engaging with you musically. Yeah, that's totally right. And, and, and you don't have to feel that you're limiting your child either. I mean, your child has his own, his own horizons and potentials, and you'll be surprised by the beautiful things that your child does just creatively in the moment. And, uh, and you'll also, I think people will also feel um, the reward of maybe not passing on that attitude that, oh, I'm not musical, or someone told me I can't sing or to stop singing. They can sort of break the cycle and and invite their child into sort of a non-judgmental musical experience that's kind of like, hey, maybe I don't think I'm, you know, Tina Turner or, or Prince, but we're doing music together and it's lovely, you know, and I'm not judging you and I'm not rejecting you or, or anything like that. So I don't know yeah. if that really answered your question, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to point out too, so uh, to the audience is I have Mother in Tune your website on the the website for the show. So if parents and listeners are interested, they can go to the website of the show and click there, but it's just motherintune.com. And I'm assuming can they contact you through that if they wanted? Yeah. Are there other uh, ways for them to contact you? Yes, they can contact me there, and they can also contact me directly. Um, so they can contact help at motherintune.com. Um, and with any question they have about um, our programs um, and or about my work, the research that I'm doing, um, and questions about music with their children. And um, there's also some social media. So I'll share things that I think are interesting in the world of children and music um, on Twitter, which is twitter.com slash mother in tune. Um, and also Facebook, facebook.com slash mother in tune. So there are three different places online where they can go and, and find what I'm doing and, and enjoy it. Great. Now, as, as um, we're actually coming toward the end of our talk, and I'm realizing when we were preparing for this, I, I don't know if I asked you to think about your five fantastic facts for families. We typically end the show by asking our specialists, you know, what's their favorite advice to share with families on the topic of the day? So mm -hmm. can you give us some of your favorite advice that we can leave families with before we end? Well, my favorite advice remains um, sing to your kid. 
That's number one. Sing <laughs> to your kid on stage. Even if you think you're tone deaf, even if someone told you you can't carry a tune in a bucket, sing to your kid every day. Um, <laughs> and uh, number two is um, when you're when you're doing music, relax and move smoothly. You know, you don't have to have choreography. You don't have to have bells and whistles or you know a full instrumentarium. Just Move smoothly and and let your body and your breath be relaxed um, while you do music with your kids. That's number number two, and um, and number three, I guess, would be um, think of yourself as a musician. Um, as we said before, you know, like let your let your attitude towards yourself and your child be that 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 we are music makers. We make music. <laughs> um, and let's see if I could wrestle up two more. I guess. Um, um, one of them would be don't let the whole idea of the Mozart effect keep you from sharing your favorite music with your children. You know, um, what's favorite to you is a way of relating to your child and, and sharing your cultural background with your child. And, and that's what you should use. You shouldn't think you have to use Mozart. Um, and that's the only way to encourage your child's mind or musical mind. <laughs> um, and number five, let's see. What would number five how about, be? How about when they should start formal training because that's I think an important uh, point that people might not realize that as I recall if you start too early that's not ideal yes definitely um to 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 start formal training when your child has stopped being in music babble which if you if you go to a website called gimmel.org g-i-m-l.org slash early childhood you'll be able to find some information about how long it takes for children to get out of music babble. And before they're out of music babble, giving them an instrument to express um, their, their musical thinking isn't very helpful to them because their musical thinking is still really just based in their body. Um, and, and it's not helpful to them to try to give them this extra tool <laughs> and expect them to produce something precise with it before they're about age five. Um, but I mean, if you, if, if you give them little trinkets to play with, like little finger symbols and little triangles and stuff, that's all fine and fun as long as your expectations are not formal um, before they're around five years old. Okay, so when you're saying music babble, giving them those symbols or whatever it is and letting them just create at will, is that, would yeah. that be a, an accurate description? Oh, oh, and, and even more more elemental than that, which yes, that 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 does fit what I'm saying, but even more elemental than that is just the way they say da 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 or ba 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 or uh, wiggle their wiggle their little bodies or stamp their feet or make other vocal sounds that don't even sound tonal. That's all music babble, and um, that's all stuff that can be welcomed and encouraged um, until they're really ready to start coordinating their their musical thoughts with their body and an instrument um, and also taking on the, the personal responsibility of practicing formally, which is part of the whole package of, of starting uh, music lessons. Right. And so as I had mentioned earlier, if, if our listeners are interested to find out more about this last point we we're talking about, about the ideal time to begin formal music training, you can go back to our Mentoring Mini Musicians podcast that we had with um, Acanum a few months ago. So great. Um, so I want to thank everybody for listening and uh, thank music teacher and music mentor Akanam Abina for lending us her time and her expertise and reminding everyone we have the links to her website on, this, on the station site for the show for today. 
And we invite you to go there to find out more about her and the services that she has for families. So as always, also, we invite everyone to email us at the show with questions or comments or feedback. And you can get to us by emailing info at kidsatoz.com. That's info at kidsatoz.com. We also encourage you to follow us on our blog talk radio page, on, um, especially on our Facebook page, which is Kids A to Z with Dr. T. On Facebook, we post a lot of interesting information up there outside of what we also do on the show. And um, I guess I think that's about it. So, again, I'm Teresa Signorelli, your host, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great day.